and welcome everyone to part eight of the Anderson Countdown. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Shelton, and this week we're discussing Wes Anderson's largest ensemble in a film to that point, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Before we get to that, me, as always, I have my Countdown co-hosts, Scott Harvey and Jay Habib. Scott, you first. How are things? Things are good, Scott. Um, hopefully by the time people listen to this, I will have procured a new vehicle. Um mm considering it's going to be like months after we're recording this, I think, when this drops. Um, But that has been consuming my life for about the past week, week and a half or so, as my old forerunner has finally run its course 300,000 miles later. Um, So I uh, I unfortunately hope this day would never come, but it has come. It is exciting, but also kind of sad to be leaving behind the vehicle. I mean, Scott, Scott knows because you know, you've been around since the, sure. the when I first acquired that vehicle. And it's kind of a uh, a part of my identity, honestly, um, for the last 11 So So much so that when, when I saw you at Christmas time, when we met at, at Ankar's Hoagies in Chattanooga, um, I was looking around the parking lot for your car. You were not driving that car. And I was very deeply confused because I knew you were there already. And I was like, what on earth is happening? Scott's not here, but he says he's here. Am I at the wrong <laughs> Ankars? Like, what have I done? Um, Does the car was, uh, have yeah. a name? Charlotte was the name. Uh, it nice. Named her Charlotte, but fitting that. But yeah, it was because in in Charlotte. It was because right, yeah, it is very fitting. But it was because I flew back to Tennessee, obviously, so I didn't have my car, which is why I was not driving it. But yeah, I'm sure it's going to take getting used to for a lot of people because my car is is very easy to pick out because I have a lot of stickers on it for one thing, and then just people's familiarities with familiarity with it. But um, yeah, it's it's exciting. But um, yeah, just starting a new era, I guess. New new year, new me, new car, new me, as they as they say. What, what what is the name of this era? Is it your new car era? Something something more clever than that, hopefully. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not uh, I'm not as clever as Taylor Swift, so I don't have a name for my eras yet. But um, okay. I'll have to do some thinking on that, I guess. Maybe before I go to the eras tour. Sure, sure. Maybe this can be your fresh era. I don't know. Jay, we heard your voice there for a bit. How are you doing? I'm good, Scott. I'm I'm tired. I've watched a, a lot of movies in the last four days. I mean, you know, a lot for me. Uh, uh-huh. I'm, I'm sure this is just like a monthly occurrence for you guys, but I, I think it's what M- much four? much more for Scott than for than for me. He crushes five? tape. Sure. No, I watched I watched five movies in the last four days. Three of them in theaters, thanks to my not at all sponsored AMC A list subscription. But yeah, I I I said Jay, I can't remember if we have talked about this on the, on on Anderson Countdown podcast when we've been here together. But Jay is is a, is a new A list subscriber, and it took me sitting him down at the kitchen table and showing him the price of a John Wick Chapter Four IMAX ticket and showing him the price of an AMC A list subscription before he realized that he had been he had been yeah. doing something wrong for the past year and a year and a half. I mean, I I personally think it's a no brainer no matter what, but especially if you live where you guys live and the price of a ticket is more than a subscription is for a month for one movie, then yeah, obviously. Especially that value, like, the the preferred site, the preferred sightline seating, you know. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's getting expensive exactly. out there. Yeah, well, I'm I'm taking advantage again. I stand by. There were probably months last year where I didn't go to movies, but again, I went three times in the last week, and then I watched two movies at home. Uh, one at Scott's home and one at my sure. own. Yeah, you know, well, we could you know, we, we could just talk just... about all five. Although I heard Scott Harvey doesn't want to talk about the Super Mario movie, so maybe maybe not that. Well, one. he hasn't seen it yet. He hasn't seen it yet. Yeah. Oh, there you go. This 
but that is something that I have observed about other people, Jay, the two that when once they get the AMCA list, uh, they end up seeing a lot more movies just because they have it. Um, so the, it was the whole I movie pass phenomenon, thing. too. Yeah, yeah it's the same. Which, hey, yeah. movie pass is back. I know a couple people sure have, have it. friend of the podcast. Zach Ford has movie. Pass. I would love to have Zach Ford on too. just to talk about whether he he like what his experience with the new movie passes. Maybe we'll just have him on for part and, two and of an episode. I have to say, we had a missed opportunity, though. I guess we have two movies left, but Wes Anderson happens to be Zach's favorite director. So, yeah. How does he feel about The French Dispatch? I mean, he, he loves it. Actually, weirdly enough, one of his least favorites, maybe even his least favorite, is the movie that we're talking about today, which is a very... But he still likes it. He still gives it four stars, but... Um, sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I, there, I, would, I would say that, you know, David Fincher and... And Chris Nolan have similar, especially Chris Nolan, similar experiences. Like my least favorite movie is like a three and a half star film. So, but I, yeah, I just mean the fact that this movie, which is arguably his most beloved, you know, his most, general, his most critically was, well received, his most critically I mean, well received. Scott Sheldon, imagine someone saying they love Nolan. The worst they've given anything is four stars, but the four star movie was The Dark Knight. Like, that would right, be yeah, weird. that that is kind of what we're saying. But I don't, I don't think a four star. I mean, look, obviously, it's one of my favorite, one of if not my favorite movie of all time. So the Dark Knight is is I understand the comparison you're making. But if I saw someone gave the Dark Knight four stars, I'd be like, all right, cool. You like that? You like you you vibe with the film? You gave it four stars. I wouldn't be like, can't believe you. Oh, but but then it's weird that he gave favorite ins- director is sure, yeah sure. is the but, person. Yeah, and, yeah, well, yeah, and yeah. and then you give like Insomnia and you know five stars like like yeah. For perspective, is that giving the Darjeeling Limited five stars? Like, I, I like. Is I mean, if, if this is four, Limited, I believe he did. Goodness. I believe he did give it five stars. So you okay. can check Letterboxd. It's like, is at least four and a half? Based have on we gone the... so far astray? <laughs> we have, yeah. Uh, well, we'll check. We'll check his available. Maybe we'll have him on the retrospective episode. Maybe that's the time to have him come on. Okay, yeah, that could be. I'll, fun. I'll talk to him. <laughs> we can we can discuss. I've been wanting to have him on the podcast forever, and the best we've ever yeah. gotten is a voice recording. Yeah, that's true. But you haven't reached out. You haven't. Uh, you haven't. Uh, we'll we'll see if we can lock it. Red. Yeah. Scott yeah, Harvey, yeah. we can gang up on someone else instead of you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm you're sure. you're absolutely correct. And Zach will probably not take your your crap, but we'll see. <laughs> your crap. But we can have it a our uh, crap, Mister Hand. <laughs> Ruben, we can have a uh, Ruben Fleischer countdown, and we can talk about Venom, and you guys can gang up on me. Exactly. <laughs> yes. There we go. <laughs> yeah. That's Jay and I spent a non insignificant amount of time thinking about what movies this weekend that Scott and Jay like that I do not. Um, and what we came up with was Venom and especially Venom, Venom 2, though. We'd have to do an Andy Circus countdown, which is only one movie. So is it just directed. one movie? Really? That's it? Wow. I thought I think that's had, it, right? I thought he'd done something else. Yeah, no, you're probably right. You're probably right. Yeah. I'm just thinking of, like the weird stuff that he's uh, like he's been in a lot of random stuff. At, uh, anyway, you know the Grand Budapest. Yeah, no, this is all that we're talking about today. I think that's it, right? That's <laughs> that covers it for this episode. Maybe um, remember to subscribe. No, he's, di- he's directed Breathe, Mowgli: Legend of the Jungle, and Venom: Let There Be Carnage. So he's directed three films. Right, those movies that everyone remembers. But anyway, the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, I have some bad news for you about some movies that we covered on this podcast as well. <laughs> At sure. some point, yeah, the Grand Budapest Hotel actually is the topic of our conversation today. Uh, it is the 2014 historical comedy drama directed and solo written by Wes Anderson. The Grand Budapest Hotel is a 17-actor ensemble whose premise is as close to a Nolan film, speaking of Christopher Nolan, as you could imagine. It is a story within a story within a story within a story. 
Uh, in the present day, a young woman visits a cemetery in the former nation of Zubravka, where there is a shrine to a renowned writer known simply as Author. At this monument, the young woman begins to read the author's most cherished book, The Grand Budapest Hotel, in which the author in 1985 recounts a vacation he took in 1968 to the once grand but now in decline titular hotel. There, the author, played by Jew Law, meets its mysterious owner, Zero, played by F. Murray Abraham, who over a dinner tells the author the story of how he came into possession of the Grand Budapest Hotel more than three decades prior. And yes, here's the final story. In 1932, Zero, new, played by newcomer Tony Revolori now, is hired as the new lobby boy for the prestigious Grand Budapest Hotel. The hotel's fastidious concierge, the famous Monsieur Gustave H., played by Ray Fiennes, rules over the hotel staff and ensures every guest's experience to be as sublime as the decor of the hotel. Monsieur Gustave also happens to seduce old, wealthy, blonde clients, including an 84-year-old dowager, Madame D., played by Tilda Swinton, with whom he has nearly a two-decade affair. A month after her most recent visit to the hotel, she mysteriously dies, and Gustave and Zero, who has quickly come into favor with Gustave for his work ethic and dedication, visit Madame D.'s Schloss Lutz estate, where they encounter her surviving relatives for the reading of her will by attorney deputy Vilas Kovash, played by Jeff Goldblum. Kovash announced a recent codicil to the will, which becomes which bequeaths a priceless Renaissance painting, Boy with Apple, to Gustav. Madame D's son, Dimitri, played by Adrian Brody, is outraged and demands Gustav's arrest. But Gustav and Zero flee the estate, absconding with the painting and hiding it at the Grand Budapest Hotel. However, their troubles are not over as Dimitri and his crony, played by Willem Dafoe, and the local police relentlessly chase Gustav and Zero after they are framed for the murder of Madame D. And with that, Jay, let's go to you first. The Grand Budapest Hotel is widely lauded as one of Wes Anderson's greatest achievements, balancing zany adventure with a more thoughtful and introspective underbelly, all with Anderson's signature vision and style, of course. Do you have similar praise for Anderson's eighth film, or will you soon be unjustly sent on the run like Gustav and Zero for not crowning the film a true achievement of the 21st century? Would I be unjustly sent on the run if I didn't view this movie as a crowning achievement i don't know uh it depends on if you ask zach ford or not i guess i don't know yeah, i was gonna say we just talked about a huge yeah, yeah. anderson fan who although we're gonna bring him on the podcast and and then send him on the run after now i'm kidding yeah apparently yeah, yeah, yeah. no I, I first and foremost i finally understand uh scott harvey's obsession with take your hands off my lobby boy yeah my lobby boy my lobby boy yeah. um and yeah I, I can't even be quiet with it because i already tipped my hand uh when we were talking about your friend Zach Ford earlier, but yeah, I, I mean, this was the best one. Like I won't even pretend I absolutely love this. I, the, the look of satisfaction on Scott Harvey's face. I mean, maybe, <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's related to that, but I He's just watching the guardians at a grand slam. It's fine. Yeah. See, I wasn't, I wasn't going to call that out, but yeah. <laughs> now you have, yeah. no, no, I, I love it. it to you. Yeah. I mean, again, like, you know, it, we've we've talked a lot on this podcast about how you know you can't do that much wrong in such a short amount of time but honestly to tell like as moving and honestly like what felt like a pretty fast-paced story out the gate and i think that's partially just because of the way like you know ray finds just like is deliver i mean like intentionally delivering dialogue right like it just feels very quick like i i didn't feel like we were taking a while getting off the ground whereas i feel like in some other west movies you know i'm not super sure what's happening like plot wise, although again, that might just be because some of those are hangout movies, but 
from this one, it was like, okay, like I know what's happening. Even though I don't, even if I don't know like the overarching story, I'm like, this is you and you are you. And this is what's happening. Um, you know, he continues using the, the patented styles around, you know, the, the like Scott, I think we described last time as like the sepia of like flat colors, you know, and just cutting from like, you know, a very like orange shot. to like, you know, now we're in the baths to like a very blue shot. Um, we divided into chapters, you know, which all have names, which Scott Sheldon needs. He doesn't like numbered chapters. I found out this weekend, you know, I, f- I feel like these are all these things that I'm like, I'm picking up on. I'm like, yes, this feels so Wes Anderson. I'm glad that like, I'm at a point where not only can I acknowledge it, but I'm also like, this particular piece was just so good. But yeah, you know, it was quippy. It was funny. It was heartfelt. Like, like I want, it's, it feels weird to describe this movie as beautiful only because if I were saying it to someone that didn't really understand what we're talking about, like in terms of, again, that like flat color and just the way he like, you know, all, like there are so many just like very colored shots. Like everyone in this shot is like kind of wearing purple and the painting in the background is purple. And like, you know, now, you know, so on and like things like that. Like, I don't think, I don't think this fits like the, Typical definition of when we describe like a movie as like beautiful. Like I think I imagined like, you know, something more like Banshees, let's say. Um, but it was gorgeous. And I've already said heartfelt and charming and all that. And yeah, it just, it absolutely worked for me. Scott, do you share Jay's praise for the Grand Budapest Hotel? Yeah. Um, it's I've had an interesting journey with this movie, which is that I saw it in theaters back in 2014 when it was released. And I was just very middling on it at the time. I don't remember why exactly. Um, I, I think, you know, I was still in college at that point. I, I think that I was still obviously refining my cinematic palette, I think it's fair to say, in 2014. But I also think 2014 was kind of, thinking back on it, like a kind of a formative year for me as a movie fan movies like boyhood and birdman and nightcrawler and whiplash all coming out in that year all sort of like you know indie indie adjacent like films that are artsy films i guess it's fair to say that are doing interesting things that i you know latched latched on to like i hadn't with films before um and it feels weird to say that the grand budapest hotel wasn't like didn't fall alongside that but it just didn't at the time um but i actually i finally went back to the movie in 2020 during covid i um was you know watching some movies for a trivia match that i had to play in. i had to watch a certain list of movies for a trivia match and the movie was on there and i started the movie and you know it was not 15 20 minutes when i was like yeah i don't i don't really know what i was thinking um i think it's definitely one of my all-time worst takes that this ever thinking that this movie was mid because now after seeing it three or four times since just that time in 2020 when I watched it, um, I think it's pretty close to a perfect movie. Um, and I think I understand, I totally understand why it's Wes's most beloved movie. I mean, it's arguably his funniest movie. It's arguably his most moving movie in a lot of ways too. Like I, I always forget when I watch it now, how sort of moving those last few moments are when you kind of get the reveal not not really reveal but like kind of comes together uh who this you know m gustav was the whole time um and you really you know you see kind of the person that he really was um and it's you know it it is it's very moving like i said the sort of tribute to him that that we get in the end 
um, because he is a, you know, he's a complicated character in a lot of ways. And that's what, you know, makes the movie so fascinating and what makes Ray Fiennes' performance so incredible. But um, I really love the note that the movie ends on. Um, but yeah, it's also just like a, a zany, fast paced, as we've said, um, crime story, I guess, if you want to call it that, um, you know, with this with this priceless artwork being the you know, the treasure that everyone is after. Um, you have like all the great quirky supporting characters from, you know, Adrian Brody, of course, always um, a delight. Um, you have uh, Willem Dafoe as the heavy, you have Jeff Goldblum, Jeff Goldblooming it up. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just so much fun to watch. Um, it has some of my favorite visual moments in his films as well. Um, I talked about a, a few shots that I love in my letterbox review, but um, yeah, the there's a shot of F. Murray Abraham's face when he's telling the story at dinner, when we're getting to the part where he's going to talk about Agatha for the first time and the, like a shadow passes off of his face and you see that there's like, it's like, um, you know, streaked with tears uh, that like that moment gets me every single time. Um, it's just a great film. Like I, I um I almost just want to go watch it again right now. Honestly, I was, um, you know, excited to revisit it despite having seen it not not even that long before this another time. Um, and it, I think it 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 rightfully ranks uh, high above high in Wes Anderson's filmography for most people. Um, it may very well be his best film i don't know if it is my favorite again I, I have a different favorite we will see if that still remains at the end of the series but it you know it could very well be his best film i certainly am not going to disagree with anyone who is going to claim that it does feel in a lot of ways like the perfect synthesis of all the things that he is good at doing yeah you both you both described this movie as as an art film so i and i just can't not think about the one of the most viral tweets that i've ever read uh, on Twitter about this. That the thing I think, about Malcolm and Marie. The thing about Malcolm and Marie film. is that it's an art film. Um, <laughs> I think you'd have an appreciation for filmmaking, cinematography, and screenwriting to truly appreciate it. I found it captivating, but more so because I was analyzing it. But I, I also have a film degree. So, I'm glad uh, you went and you found that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was looking it up while you guys were talking because mm -hmm. I was reminded of it when Jake, I think, called it an art film. And then you said art film too, Scott. And I was like, right, I, I think I did. Yeah. yeah. Did I? I'm like, I'm, I don't think I've heard that expression, but. Well, you, you call it like art. It was like an, an artsy thing. I got you. You said art in some way that reminded me of the tweet, and then I went and looked it up, and then sure, Scott sure. said art film, and then I was <laughs> just like, I have to do this. Shout out, um, Kaylin Allen. What? <laughs> one of the one of the silliest tweets that I've ever read. I mean, I don't know if that was if he was in on the joke on that or not. I know he's that tweet that tweet got deleted, but I mean, the QRTs on that were legendary. Um, anyway, I will say that I am sort of in agreement with everything that you all have said. I turned this on Saturday morning. I was watching this before I, I was watching soccer. Um, I was watching watch Manchester City play at like midday. And I turned this on before and I Scott, I texted you like 30 minutes and I was like, man, this thing just just goes. It really does. Uh, I hadn't seen it in a little while. I, I know that I've told Scott this story many times about my first time viewing the Grand Budapest Hotel. I saw it in theaters. I saw it at Images Cinema, Jay. You'd appreciate that. I watched this my freshman year at Images. Um, Pretty sure I saw it on a date, um, <laughs> which is funny. But it, was this the, the one of the dates that you didn't know was a date? No, no, this one. This one I knew was a date. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> that was that was Man of Steel for me. Fun fact, Scott Harvey. But 
Moving oh on. my god, that would have been the worst date ever, no matter who you were with. <laughs> well, he he didn't know he was on a date though, Scott, so it was fine. Um, yeah. but no, I knew that this was a date. Went went to go see this film at Images in the spring of, of 2014. And uh there is a scene in this film where Willem Dafoe is sort of standing in the background petting a cat, and Adrian Brody is confronting uh Jeffrey Goldblum's character, and just completely no context out of nowhere just throws the cat out the window at the end of the scene and and this is images was full jay i mean it's a small theater but it was full and i cackled at this and i swear to god i was the only person who laughed um at that moment and i felt so viscerally uncomfortable after that do people in that town have no sense of humor because that that's what i'm gathering from this yeah i can't believe that we lived there for four years jay pretty crazy um yeah it was uh I, one of the most uncomfortable time, like feelings I've ever had in the theater was was bursting you were out the laughing. crazy guy that time. <laughs> I was the crazy guy. Yeah, I burst out laughing at that scene, and, and not a single other person laughed in the theater, and I felt you know, just deeply uncomfortable. So I know Scott's heard that story at least once before, if not multiple times. But I do feel like it's appropriate to tell that story because, uh, you know, I would say even since that first viewing, my love for this film has only grown. Every single time I watch it, I feel like I appreciate it even more. And just like, especially watching all the, you know, these movies in the sequence in the countdown sort of format that we have. I mean, what what a run of films between Fantastic Mr. Fox to Moonrise Kingdom to this. I, I know Jay's not as big a fan of at least of Moonrise Kingdom as Scott and I are, but the this sort of like, I guess it's like a five year run from 2009 to 2014 is just incredible. And to sort of cap it off with this, what does feel like sort of his like greatest work you know again whether it's your favorite or not you know your mileage can vary but what feels like his greatest work and one of the reasons for that is like it's it might it might be the most accessible of his films at least of the ones that we've watched so far it is a fun adventure movie at its core like if, if you're not even if you don't totally vibe with wes anderson's style and and sort of the mature angle he approaches some of his themes you you do get that in this movie still it's not like he is he has hidden that away but there's like something else in the movie to latch onto, I think. And that and that other thing is is pretty compelling. I think the actual story at its heart is like a pretty compelling and sort of propulsive plot that keeps you going. Jay, you talked about how it wasn't very like the plot wasn't confusing at all. Like, yeah, there were a lot of characters, but it was easy to follow. And I think that there frankly, there just really aren't that many West movies that sort of take that approach. And, and that is out of design. Of course, he's not really trying to sort of tell these sort of adventure style narratives, let alone like, you know, something with this sort of scope and, and, and grandeur. And so I think that it sort of added this extra element for we'll call, you know, laymen to who go see movies to latch onto, to enjoy. And guys, could you imagine a Wes Anderson film making $175 million at the box office these days? Like, this is not even possible. Uh, there's just no way, there's just no way that any of his films would ever make $175 million anymore. And that's what this film did, which is a pretty incredible. I think it's remarkable. Yeah. The cast is outstanding. Ray Fiennes is on another level for me. He's just like absolutely incredible in the film. Um, Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe, Ed Norton, Jeff Goldblum. You know, even some of like the minor, minor cameos of like Jason Schwartzman or Bill Murray or Owen Wilson. They're all just really enjoyable. Um, I really <laughs> I think my letterbox review, I just put this down, I just put no notes. And I just really feel like I don't have many notes for for this film. Uh, film good. I think is my note, my note for the movie, guys. Movies are good sometimes. Yeah, they it's really are. Good. They really, really are. Yeah. So, Jay, why don't we go to you first? I just talked about how I really feel like cast top to bottom is amazing. Scott talked about um, Gustav sort of, of course, it takes a little while to be introduced to him. Uh, 
the film does go for about 5, 10, 15 minutes before you really get to meet and, and get to know Gustav. But once you get to know him, what did you think of Ray Fiennes' performance? Did you feel like he was able to really hold the center of this movie, like be the gravity of, of the film? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think he said like knocked it out of the park. It's, I mean, it's funny, right? Because he's in the story within the story within the story within the story, if I'm getting Yeah, that right. I typed but it out. Like... <laughs> I typed it only three the first time. I was like, oh, actually, there's four layers here. <laughs> sure. But he, yeah. despite being Inception. in the, you know, the innermost one, just absolutely carries it. I mean, I, I really could have fact-checked this before I hopped on, but I think the roles I've seen him in thus far are Voldemort and, uh, oh, crap, what's the name of the character he plays in the Bond franchise? He plays M. He plays M, but just after. Those are the only movies that you've seen Ray Fiennes in? I don't know that for sure. And this is why I'm like, I should have fact checked this before I said that. Um, But the point is, is like, you know, after I got past my initial, like, that's Voldemort. Like, it was like, oh, wow, this this is not Voldemort. This is um, so much better. Not that like he was bad in that, but, you know, again, just like whole other level. Um, You know, you you really just got the sense, right. That he takes such pride in like being able to deliver and be like up to snuff all the time. Like no matter what, even if, you know, the movie kind of does like poke at some maybe questionable things around the guy's behavior with like older insecure blonde women, rich blonde women, um, whatever it is. But like, you know, that's not, not that's just like women. not, not just women. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he just absolutely carried it. And like so much so that, you know, when uh, I'm butchering this, Tony Revolori, um, you know, is very yeah. much like learning at his feet. You know, I, I'm almost like, I get it. Like, you know, I would like hang on every word Ray Fiennes is saying. And like, you know, I'm, you know, some of this is of course a credit to like the character of zero, right? Like, you know, he's like dedicated, loyal, et cetera. But like, it was all, even so it was like, yup. Like I, I would hang on Ray Fiennes' words. I would wear my lobby boy hat and my uniform like out, you know, wherever else I go. Cause he's just like wearing that in like places that are not the hotel. Absolutely yeah. He, he has a certain magnetism for sure. Both on, you know, both holding the camera, but also in the way he holds the attention of other characters in the film. I absolutely understand what you're saying there. Scott, do you want to expound a little bit more about Ray Fiennes? Do you agree with what Jay sure. said? I mean, yeah, he is like a, tornado honestly when he just yeah. comes on screen in this movie and obviously the first scene i think we see him is with madame d um mm-hmm. but then you know i think where it really just gets cooking is when zero shows up and he you know is walking him through the hotel and um i i love that exchange so much of you know experience blah blah blah, blah zero education blah, blah, blah zero family zero it's so perfect. Like it is, um, it is the, everything that the freaking how Han Solo gets his name. I knew, uh, I knew you were about to say that. I knew you. But but this is this was done well, right? It's not just like some random security. That's what Scott's saying. Like, though. That's what Scott. That's what I'm saying. This is the antithesis yeah, yeah, yeah. of that. This is, sure, yeah, this sure, is sure. everything that that scene is not. Um, yeah, it, it's perfect. But he is, you know, obviously he's a comedic firecracker. Just the you know, take no prisoners attitude that he had, um, how put together he is, you know, he was the most liber- liberally perfumed man that I ever met and all, you know, all this stuff about him. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, again, as with so many less protagonists, as we're kind of seeing um, that 
emotional core starts to reveal itself as the movie goes on. Of course, you know, we we're kind of like hinted at it a little bit, like when, you know, they're on the train, they're, you know, going to the will reading and um, the soldiers try to apprehend them, particularly they try to apprehend zero because he doesn't have any papers and, you know, Monsieur Gustav steps right in and, you know, um, stands up for him, defends him, starts calling them, you know, fascist pigs and all this stuff, you know, really going after the, the Nazi soldiers. And, um, and, you know, eventually the similar situation we learn is kind of how he ends up losing his life, um, sort of resisting as well. Um, and, you know, much of the heartbeat of the film is the relationship between him and, and Zero that forms, like, he actually really does care about him. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's a great layer to his character because early on so much you are wondering, like, you know, he's got all these relationships with the old women, the rich old women, whatever. It's like, what are his motivations really? Right. Like, is he, does he actually, you know, care for them? I don't, and I don't even know if we, if we get the answer to that, but, um, or is he just in it for the money? But we know that like, by the end of the movie, he obviously, has a capacity to feel things and he really sort of um has this defender role in a way for like marginalized people like uh, like uh you know zero is in some ways um and you know the way he like believes in the relationship between zero and agatha too um yeah it's it's just such a great character um he plays all the sides of it he balances everything so well. It, you know, we're, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, in the retrospective episode, but it, you know, it is very much in contention, contention for the best performance by any actor in a, in a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, it, it's one of those performances where it's, it is the character, the the dialogue that this, this character has. It is, it is whip smart. It, the way it is delivered by him is sharp and it, jabs like his speech jabs uh almost it's like a it's like he's dueling someone or like his conversations with people are like reposts like he's he's jabbing weaving jabbing weaving it, it is very almost like the timing of it is very precise i guess is what i mean to say and the what he's saying sort of matches the delivery as well it's not just how he says it it is what he's saying as well and and ray finds just captures it perfectly jay i will say one thing about other movies to watch i mean i'm surprised you haven't seen the menu which is a, a film last year that he is one of if not the lead in and that is directed by mark milet of of succession fame probably most notably but uh and I feel like I feel like everyone has seen the menu, Scott. Like it's like the most reviewed film on Letterboxd. It was, a, it was a big, big movie last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no shame if you haven't seen it. No, no, no. I don't mean I don't mean it like that. It's just like my I surprise is coming from I. I always there's. It feels like every week it's a lot of fun. It. You should definitely watch it. Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of people in my periphery that like watched it. Like in addition to mm -hmm. you two, I'm honestly surprised I didn't watch it myself. But yeah, maybe sure. Other things to check out though. He is. Uh, I would say he's another character in that in that film that really holds the holds the camera holds the like holds everyone's attention around him he has that sort of magnetic um sort of charisma on the on the screen in that film as well uh anyway uh, yeah i just think the performance is it's kind of just epic like the performance is kind of epic i sort of say that in the most literal sense because it's such a wide-ranging story it is an adventure and, and you sort of get the full gamut of experiences and emotions out of Ray finds in this. So it's it's just really a really spectacular performance. 
I think that you pretty, you, he kind of just like, he opens up and he comes off as this kind of like prick or a douchebag at the end of the film who sort of lords his power over, over his employees. But you soon come to realize, and I think one of the real charms of the character and one of the things that makes him so likable and why you get invested and curious and, and, and into the sort of mystery of the character is that he clearly has his own moral code and he lives his life by that code. And that code isn't explicitly laid out. It's not clear. You know, there's no, you know, I'm just thinking about air, which is a film that we just, that we watched and just talked about this. Like, there's no like ethic, I mean, company ethic on the wall behind his, like, you know, behind him in his office that is like the code he lives by. But there is this mysterious sort of logic and um, ethic to the way he lives his life. And, and it, you know, it doesn't necessarily, um, you know, it, it isn't the same as, as what we might sort of draw up as a, as a moral, as a morality for us, but it, it works for him. And I think that sort of the mystery of what that is, but also the charm of how you see it play out, you know, in the way that he defends, you know, zero against the sort of, you know, fascist police that are raiding the train, the way that he you know, lives his life in a very cavalier way, but at the same time showing a great respect for people um, to a certain, you know, in a, in a certain manner. I think that that sort of way that he conducts himself is very endearing and very captivating. And so the way that the character is written, I think, is extremely compelling. And the way that it's performed and executed is equally so. So just I really have nothing but praise for the performance overall. I'm excited that, you know, this is not the film that we're leading up to in the countdown series, but I believe he is going to be in the the other Wes Anderson movie coming out later this year, which is the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. I believe he's going to be one of the characters in that film. So, you know, we'll be talking about that later this year when it comes out on Netflix. But um, it's exciting just to see him working again uh, with with Wes in the in the near future. I don't believe he he's done any other West movies. Scott, correct me if I'm wrong there. He wasn't in The French yeah. Dispatch. He's not in Isle of Dogs. So. Yeah. It's cool to see him back. He'll be back later this year working with Wes because, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that I've seen even most of Ray Fiennes' film performances, but this is probably the best one that I've seen uh, out of him. And it's a it's a special performance, but there is a huge host of other supporting characters. I think the one that we have to give some more meaningful attention to is, of course, Tony Revolori's character. Uh, Jay, this is, of course, the the person who Scott was alluding to on the last episode that you would just call the the kid from Spider-Man or whatever. Um, what did you think of Tony Revolori? This, I mean, he is a newcomer in this film. This was his first film project, and he's given a pretty uh, intimidating task. He, you know, again, he like, you know, like Ray Fiennes, he doesn't show up for the first part of the movie, but then once he does show up, he's pretty much a co-lead of the film with Ray Fiennes. Like, he's the main character, and he has to go toe-to-toe with this pretty magnanimous performance from Ray Fiennes. What did you think of him? Well, he's not just a kid from Spider-Man anymore. I can tell you that much. Sure. <laughs> he, yeah. Now he's he, now he's uh, the kid from the Grand Budapest Hotel. Let's go. Oh yeah. He, he's the lobby boy from the Grand Budapest he's the Hotel. Lobby boy. There you go. <laughs> no, he was great. He you talk about him having to go, you know, toe to toe with Ray Fines, and it's almost like he has to almost like stumble to keep up, right? Like there has to sure. be a certain like earnest vigor to it, and he's not, you know, he he's not quite like matching him stride for stride, but he's keeping up. Um. And again, I feel like he just brought that again in the way that I was describing, you know, I feel like I would kind of be like, like, you know, leaning on every word that Ray Fiennes is delivering because he's delivering it so well, like, you know, 
his character is also just like, you know, bing, bang, boom. Like I'm, I'm here. I'm here to learn. I will be loyal to you. Like, and you know, it, it, it's conveyed just with that, like that almost like it's not, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's earnest, but it's still like reserved, right? Like you don't get the sense that he's ever like, you know, just like he's carrying a lot with him. There's that scene that comes later, right? Where like Ray Fiennes is going off in front of the prison about how, uh, he's forgotten like the perfume and the fake nose is part of the disguise. Like, you know, what good are you? And it comes out that, you know, he's like a war refugee and, you know, Ray Fiennes is ultimately like, Oh, like better take it all back then. <laughs> like I was kind yeah. of an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you, you like that, that backstory that just makes like all the sense to me. Like, I feel like this character is portrayed so well, which is like the subtlety of like, you know, like there's, there's more just like, you know, emotional baggage here. Like, and we get some of that, we were alluded to some of that earlier when, you know, he's doing that checklist of like experience and it's like, Oh, he has no family, but even more so like, you know, a war refugee. Like, I feel like that, that just made all the sense to me. And it, it just, you know, he, he's the kid from Spider-Man no more. Like I, if, you know, if I ever, I'm sure I will eventually we watch at least one of those, like, it's just going to be so different. It's going to be like, Oh, you're being wasted here. Like you've gone from, you know, this very moving, meaningful performance to, you know, sub dickwad like that's the line i think of from freaking far from home and any any other notes scott (laughs) yeah he's great in the movie for sure um i think you know he i obviously balances out fines really well as we're saying he's more reserved of course which is um you know which is um which is what's required but he nails that emotional undercurrent too of being like this kid who just kind of his whole life seemingly has been thrust into situations that he didn't really ask to be a part of and being kind of a victim of circumstance in a lot of ways. Um, and it's one of the you know reasons that I think finds connects with him because he sees that this, this kid is just trying to, to do his best, make his way in the world, stay out of everyone's way, you know, just, just be the lobby boy. And, um, and he respects that about him. And, um, yeah, I think also, you know, this is probably where you're going next, but I think having F. Murray Abraham, you know, his voice um, telling the story also adds something to this character too, because we now, you know, see who this, see who he has become. And I think, as I was alluding to earlier, I think F. Murray Abraham is probably my second favorite performance in the movie. I think um, he just brings so much, you know, gravity to that that role of just the story storyteller really and yeah so um, much wisdom so much right yeah he, so he you can totally feel like that he has been reliving this story and the, all of the emotions that come with it for for years and um and has learned a lot from that experience and yeah wisdom i think is a good word for it but he's so great in the movie and i think just having him there also endears you to revelory because you know that yeah, they're the same. Yeah, it's his performance is really strong. Jay, you're talking about how he sort of like stumbles to keep up in this. I think one of the one of the great sort of um, ways that the film makes the performance almost accessible in terms of his ability to keep up is that. You know, he's sort of being he we are being introduced to Tony Revolori as an actor, as this character Zero, the same way that Zero is being introduced to Gustav and the Grand Budapest Hotel. So this whole idea of like this sort of wide eyed deer in the headlights kind of kid who is just sort of being 
thrown into the deep end and he just has to go, go, go keep like, there's no time to think about what he's doing because if you want to win the favor of this guy, you just have to do it. And that's like kind, I just feel like there's, yes, there's, of course there's acting involved, but like the circumstances, like the meta circumstances of the film sort of set up the sort of match the, I think the performance that's being given and what's asked of the character in the film. And I think that what it creates is this ability to really sort of capture this sort of new this novelty in both the performance and also both you know the character and i think that really works well and and he absolutely keeps up he of course is is going to play second i think he's always going to play second fiddle to ray fines in the film but that's also like how how the character's kind of written right like he's there to be the lobby boy and he plays that part you know nearly to perfection probably and yes, I feel like so, there's so many things you could point at and one of the, uh, in, in other movies that's like, you know, I don't understand how they bridge this gap. How do you get from point A to point B in this? But one of the pieces of magic about this film and why it works so perfectly, I think, is exactly what Scott said, is that you can really see the lines being drawn between Tony Repolori and F. Murray Abraham, this younger zero and this older zero. And it feels that they feel like they are the same person. You know, it, it is abrupt. It is it is stark. That is the that is sort of the conceit of the film in its, you know, story within a story within a story within a story structure. But it's also at the same time, like you can you don't know what the what the life is that he's lived in the intervening years. He You obviously get a little bit of, of detail about what's happened immediately after the events of 1932. But it, it kind of feels like whatever those events are, they don't really matter because this is clearly the same person. And I just, you know, you really, I think you really feel that in the film. So yeah, big fan of F. Murray Abraham. Jay, before we move on to like the broader ensemble, anything else you'd like to say about, about the elderly zero? Nothing to add. I mean, just to echo what you guys have said. I mean, you know, he delivers it in a way that I'm like, you, as you said, you can see the lines kind of drawn between the younger and the older, and he does have a very soothing voice. I didn't realize this. Scott, did you watch Moon Knight? Did I know? either scott he voices he's conscious. yeah he's yeah conscious. which I, yeah. I didn't realize until we were done my partner actually pointed it out and i was like oh yeah no very very soothing voice i keep forgetting you haven't seen i love how you say conchu because i think a lot of people if if they were to watch this film in, in this year they'd be saying oh it's the older guy from the white lotus season two but you're saying it's conchu, that was that was which is brought fun. to my attention as or, well but i haven't yeah, watched yeah, or yet. people would be saying he is salieri from Amadeus, one of the greatest films of all time. He but I'm but I'm saying pop yeah. culture wise, like if you're gonna reference nowadays, from last yes. year, yeah, 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 yeah. There's no way Jay's seen Jay's seen Amadeus. Can't say that I have. Yeah. Another one to add to the list. Okay. No way. <laughs> I still have Petite Mama on like just a note on my phone, just like sitting there. Like someday it'll get ticked off. <laughs> That's a random one, but I I'm glad it's. We on we there. talked about it on this on this countdown, I think, or maybe it was offline, but it was it was yeah. one of these talks. It, yeah, watch it. It's it only was... seventy-two minutes. So, you know, I, I I said that uh that there's no way he's seen Amadeus, and then I realized that my first introduction to Amadeus was in at a history class in school when when mm-hmm. I think uh, Randy Odell popped it on, let it rip. <laughs> I definitely watched it in school as well. I don't yeah. think it was Odell, but uh. anyway, sorry, sorry uh, my uh, education wasn't as good as yours, guys. <laughs> well, ar- arguably, your education was better then because you know, rather than showing us a, a great film, you, maybe you actually yeah. learned some history. And, and you, no disrespect, I love Randy Odell. Randy, if you're listening Odell. to this podcast. <laughs> thank you for listening. I have no idea how you ended up here, but um, Jake, please continue <laughs> about F. Murray Abraham. No, that was it. Just 
it was ending on the note of his his voice is very soothing. So wider ensemble, Scott. We're gonna swing around to you first because uh, you're a, you're a lover of an ensemble, I believe. There's Adrian Brody. There's Willem Dafoe. We haven't talked. We haven't even said Sear Sharonin's name yet. Who does play Agatha? Who you did mention earlier? But uh, Sear Sharonin is in this film. You know, pre pre Lady Bird, Sear Sharonin, Tilda Swinton, and is it just me? Nearly unrecognizable in this film, I'd say. Very hard to recognize to me. I don't know. I did a mm-hmm. double take a bit when I when I I had like double check. Like that's Madame D. That's that's her. That's Madame. D. Okay, she okay, is often okay. unrecognizable. That's I mean that, fair enough. That's you're Suspiria. Not she plays a yeah, man. Three, yeah, sure. Like three different characters in Suspiria. Yeah. Ed Norton plays one of the police investigators. Uh, Matthew Almarik, who is not someone we we've talked about yet, but it does appear in future West movies, plays Serge X, who is a butler, who is one of the key sort of. I don't know, can you call him a MacGuffin? in the film a figure that is being chased down by everyone uh jeff goldblum jude law jason schwartzman so many people leia sadu another person who jay had a you know had a very eventful weekend seeing multiple movies in which he did not realize leia sadu was in. did you recognize her in this film i recognize her in ghost protocol you you pointed her out as mrs bond i'm like dude i recognize her but i actually it's funny i wasn't gonna you did not immediately this is some revisionist history right here you did not you said like she looked familiar you didn't know who she was no if you give me like extra half a second i would have gotten there but i did not recognize her i in this one in this one it was like i i actually you know did the usual like look at the cast list make sure i know the names and then i saw leia Sadu as like butler's wife or like maid excuse me and i was like Wait, what? And it's funny because, yeah. yeah, like, you know, what was it, two days ago? Yesterday? I don't remember when this was. The day before um, you saw this movie, you had seen Ghost Protocol. Yes, which is, the day before. Plays a minor role. And you it. were like, oh, yeah, there's her. And I'm like, I recognize her. I would recognize her. And you're like, it's a few years ago. I'm like, so? And then I didn't recognize her in this one. I mean, look, I got to shout out my guy, Adrian Brody. He is yeah, just he's cooking. A, a firecracker, of course. And his best performance still to come. But I think this sure. performance in many ways inspired what we're going to see in the French Dispatch, just the type of character that he is playing. But yeah, him as Dimitri is hilarious. I did the will reading scene is just so great. He calls him a name that you cannot really call people anymore. But then, you know, lobs some other insults, contradicts himself. It's like, I thought I was this. Well, you are, but you're bisexual. <laughs> it's just one of the funniest lines to me. Um, and then when they all punch each other out, too, it's one of my favorite, like funniest gags, too, in the movie. But um, he just really he just has like such a great way of, I don't know, just a look about like his lines. It's musical. Yeah, it's line delivery. It's the way he carries himself because there's other movies where he doesn't come off like this. Mm-hmm. But then there's movies like this where he just I don't know if it's like a, the way he his posture or what it is, but he just looks like a huge asshole sometimes mm-hmm. um big villain energy defoe was obviously a great heavy as well i mean yeah. you know with the the, the fingers t- teeth or whatever like that you know just striking fear into your heart or whatever i love the chase like scene where he's chasing after jeff goldblum and um we get that another one of my favorite shots when we when he like they're they go through that statue room or whatever and it's like dark you see the statues and then there's like the, the tiny light all the way down at the end from like the doorway and you just see him come in and like stand in the light for a minute and it looks like he's one of the statues it's such a cool shot um anyway that doesn't really have anything to do with his performance but he's great um he holds real still for that scene it's yeah a great he performance. Does. i love saoirse ronan and everything you know 
not one of her most memorable roles, probably you would you would say here in this movie. More memorable than her role in French Dispatch, certainly. But but yeah, she is good, you know, as Agatha that is, you know, talked about in in uh, such revered terms. Like I get it. Everyone's great. Like uh, again, you know, it's it's one of his most impressive ensembles. I could go on and on and talk about every single person. Nobody wants to hear me do that, but everyone's great. Um, those are just kind of the the first few people that that come to mind, probably. But um, it's another another classic Wes ensemble piece for sure. Jay, yeah. Uh, so definitely not Leia Sadu. You're calling out anybody? Anybody else you want to add? I don't think Scott Harvey said much about Ed Norton, um, but he was back. Sure. Shame to see what a what a tragic turn his character took from the last movie mm. to this one, where you know, being the whole camp scout leader, like you know, didn't work out. So he became, uh, everybody finds his word like yeah, a fascist pig. Um, mm-hmm. That was that was tough to see, but well, we it, everyone does say khaki scouts are a direct line into into the fascist Nazi groups. So. The Hitler youth, yeah, yeah, the Hitler youth, Lord. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> you forgot to say just kidding. Well, khaki scouts aren't real, Jay. I don't know if you know this or not. I honestly about, couldn't have told you. How about Harvey Keitel as a pinky or whatever his name was? The, the guy he meets in jail. I think jail. Lud- he was Ludwig is, the, is his name, not pinky. Oh, pinky's he, other he plays, guy, yeah. he plays Ludwig, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I, shout, look, he's shout, great. Shout out to Gunter for, you know, taking out all those prison guards that they I ran know. into and then giving his own life so they can get out but yeah, yeah. i love that scene it's just them watching like yeah. you just see them watching and you just hear the noises going yeah. on and then no, it was good. you see all the body the you way see, he you, just like when they open jumps when they op- down into yeah. the hole yeah, yeah. So when fun. he opens it they all look at each other he's like <sighs> and like pulls out a knife or whatever <laughs> so uh, also how about all the other like uh bellhops and stuff at the hotel so i can't remember so yeah. there's bob balaban there's, I guess, Bill Murray as well. Bill Murray, too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean that that might Fisher be Fisher Stevens, our boy Hugo, yes, on Succession. Yes. That um, might be one of the funniest. That might be the funniest part of the movie to me is that, that whole sequence where they're all phoning each other and the takeover. And he's like, you know, yeah. he's giving the guy CPR takeover. <laughs> and that's the other guy coming. You know, Bob Balaban or whatever is tasting the soup. He's like, it needs more salt. Takeover. And the yeah. kid's like, it needs more salt. <laughs> Wallace, it's Wallace, so Wallace, funny. It's, Wes's it's guy, perfect, Wallace Waladarski, is also in there. It's a perfect Wes Anderson gag because it's like, it's got the symmetry like that he loves so much. But it's like also like the just the random absurdity. Like you think back to like Bill Murray just running off like playing basketball with the kids and Rushmore or whatever, just like the randomness. And it's, it's just so great. Sure. Yeah. A real, uh, hodgepodge of, you know, Wes's regulars in there between Bob Balaban Fisher Stevens. I'm not sure he's been in a West movie yet, but then I think he's like in the rest of them. I'm pretty sure he, he is in both the French dispatch and Isle of dogs. And Wallace Waldarski of course plays, you know, a major character in, Fantastic Mr. Fox. I'm forgetting the name of the landlord, but he plays the landlord who's also uh, Mr. Fox's best friend. I can't remember the, mm-hmm. the possum's name. Uh, but yeah, good, great, great scene for sure. Great. Just a great ensemble all around. I, I don't really know if the, we if there's anyone we haven't really talked about at this point, but, you know, J- Jason Schwartzman, I think, makes the most of his like few minutes on screen. Very funny. You know, not his best cameo in a, in a West film. I think he, he probably wins it in Moonrise Kingdom. For me, but yeah, that's great. Jude Law, who we haven't talked about, sort of has sort of plays opposite F. Murray Abraham in, in a couple of the key scenes that Scott was alluding Tom to earlier. Yeah. 
yeah, Tom Wilkinson, very brief, um, as the off the older version of the author who's like writing the story or you know writing the book in 1985. Yeah, just a really incredible ensemble. It, you know, if I had to pick people who who aren't memorable in the ensemble, it probably would be Searsha Ronan and Tilda Swinton. There's like people who you're just not going to probably remember out of this film. You know, a few years down the road, but everyone else, I think. I mean, when I think of this movie, I'm always going to think of Ray Fiennes, but Adrian, like all these characters, other characters are just so memorable, um, especially Adrian Brody and Willem Dafoe. I, of course, I'm partial to Willem Dafoe because I'll ever forever have that scene burned into my memory and the experience of embarrassment in the movie theater. But uh, it's also very, very good. You shouldn't have felt embarrassed. You were right. No, I, I wasn't embarrassed because I was right. I was embarrassed because. You know, it's I was a freshman in college. You know, Scott, you got to have a code and live by it. No one has a code freshman year of college. If we had codes freshman year of college, we'd all be happier people probably. Anyway, we haven't talked about the adventure of it all yet, guys. We talked all about these characters. We haven't talked about the fun, uh, arguably, of the film, which is, of course, that, you know, there's everything that happens that I sort of set up at the beginning before we started our high level thoughts. There's the death. There's the will reading. There's stealing the painting, but, you know, they they deposit that that painting in the hotel and there's a grand adventure that then sort of takes off from there because we find out that they, of <laughs> course, have been framed for the murder of Madame D by Tilda. Uh, sorry, by, by um, Adrian Brody's character, Dimitri, and they're going to be arrested and said they flee. They go on the run. They hunt down Serge X, which is Matthew Amalric's character, who is the butler. And it is a veritable chase across the countryside. There's even a Bond-like uh, skiing down the mountain scene. So good. Um, yeah, there's so many great, great sort of adventure-type scenes, guys. I don't know if there's any specifically that, that come to mind that you want to that you want to highlight or certain elements of this of this, which feels there has been adventure, uh, especially in something like the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Like we've seen bits and pieces of that, maybe shreds of it even in Moonrise Kingdom or or um, even even in its earliest films like Bottle Rocket, but this is this is different than what we've seen to date. And I'd love, Scott, for me to start with you first here. What about it that sort of makes it so memorable and such a highlight for you? Yeah, it's like his most action-packed movie in a lot of ways. Like you said, they're they're traveling a lot. They're covering a lot of ground. You have multiple chase sequences. You have people getting murdered. You have, yeah. uh, like, the jailbreak, like, you know, as we're talking about. Great. Um, you have a shootout kind of at the end in the hotel. Like you've got it all. Not even kind of. Uh, you definitely have a shootout at the end yeah, of the hotel. You definitely do. Yeah. Um I the whole time I was just thinking of when you were describing the adventure, thinking of when the cops show up to the hotel and he he figures out what's going on. He's like, Oh, and now you you think that I'm the one who killed her or whatever. And then he just like everything stops and he just tries to run away yeah. there in the lobby. Again, another just like hilarious, absurd moment. Um, but yeah, the ski chase is probably like the, the standout, um, you know, of like these set pieces, I guess, just, it's all happening so quickly and suddenly, and, you know, Serge X or whatever his name is really meets a brutal end there. And he does, um, it's true. And then they're hanging on the end of the mountain. And then of course leads to, if you want to, if you want to challenge me on the funniest part of the movie, not being the takeover, then I think your, your retort would have to be the holy shit, you've got him <laughs> when, when, yeah, he, yeah. when he kills uh, 
when Joplin meets his end, yeah. 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 When when Defoe meets his end, like just his delivery of that line, because he's there like quoting poetry or whatever. Yeah. He's, like thinks he's seconds from dying, and like literally without like breaking his sentence, like he just goes from poetry to "Holy shit, you've got him!" <laughs> it's so great. But uh, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's just a fun time. Like it's it's again, it's you you think about all these little moments and it's not hard to see why this is I, I agree with you it's the most accessible of his films because it is so fast-paced and there's action happening but the action is not in, you know it, it doesn't feel like Wes is obviously compromising what he's all about mm-hmm. um, in his filmmaking style because he's able to to gussy up these action sequences with some of his usual uh usual tricks so sure no complaints for me yeah, I, I, one of the other highlights before I, I swing around to Jay here to ask him about the adventure, the adventure elements is is also you talked about symmetry earlier with uh, with the crossed keys, the different um, hotel concierges. There's another scene right before the chase down the mountain where there's they go and they go into this chapel or this service or whatever that's happening, and they have like a consecutive interactions with like five different priests or whatever. Be like, are you Monsieur Gustave? Um, and just very, very funny stuff. And obviously, you know, classic Gustav response at the end is he's tired of this shtick. He's like, yes, of course. Um, getting, getting very upset with him. Very good stuff. So Jay, anything to, to highlight here that Scott talked about the skiing down the mountain scene. We earlier talked about the sort of chase through of Kovach through like the museum and whatnot. Other, other scenes, uh, set pieces that, that sort of stick out to you. Yeah. I will call out the prison escape and then sure. the uh, the snowy scenes where they're kind of going up and down the cable cars like before they have the big confrontation and the skiing and all that. And the mm-hmm. reason I will, uh, you, you say, you know, we've, we haven't seen things like this before, but it weirdly, and you can agree or not, reminded me of like Fantastic Mr. Fox for some reason where in the prison escape, let's say like as they're getting out, like there's one shot where you just see like the shadows of the feet of the men, like on the rope, just like kind of dancing across the screen. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, when they're, when they're like, you know, going up and down the stairs and into the ta- into the cable cars, it almost feels like, and again, I might just be wrong about this technical point. It feels like he's like slowed the frame rate down almost. So it, it almost feels kind of like it did in fantastic Mr. Fox when it's like stop motion. Like it just feels like a little bit slower to me. Again, I don't know if I'm, technically correct or not but it's, it's just, not it's not it's definitely not the frame rate but it might it might be how long <coughs> each shot lingers on each movement if that makes sense sure uh that again and you know just the kind of like all right up you go and like just you know like we're just we're trying to escape right now like that element just felt very reminiscent of like fantastic mr fox and i did appreciate that yeah this i mean this is what i'm saying like i really felt like he I know I said this last episode and I'm not sure if I said it even while we were watching or while we were talking about Fantastic Mr. Fox is that I, I feel like he went off and made his stop motion animated film and it just sort of like really refined his craft and like how he was going to use different techniques. And I think it made him like less afraid to be even more unorthodox than maybe he had been even in the past with his style and and the ways that he manifested that style on the screen. I think it's just like super <coughs> you know, super great stuff because you, there's just so few filmmakers who are as bold and, um, and who have sort of like the stylistic inclinations to do what you're describing, Jay, because it does really work, works perfectly in these settings. It makes it feel like this sort of like, again, I go back to saying like zany. It is this sort of like zany, goofy 
like simultaneously like like kind of like almost kid friendly adventure but then when you actually like fit like visually it's like this very kid friendly adventure i think to what you're describing because it feels almost animated in certain respects but then also like when you realize it's actually happening on screen it's like super mature like very dark film that you know you wouldn't necessarily want to show a kid but absolutely think that's that's great stuff anything anything else you wanted to highlight no i mean that th- those were those were my call outs and then ultimately like you like you guys just said you know there's there's more action in this than you see in most of the other movies yeah no doubt about that i mean one of the things that i think sort of to polish it off here before we enter wrap up i i think for for me like the finale at the grand budapest hotel which scott i think briefly alluded to like the shootout at the end of the film super entertaining when they're all like sort of like sneaking around different parts of the hotel i think like it, not that the geography of the hotel is super legible. I think that you just sort of kind of have no idea where things are in the hotel, but that like oddly works well, like not knowing where anyone is. It's sort of just like, it doesn't really matter just because it's so fast paced. It's so um, frenetic's not the right word because that is something that implies something that's not true about the film, but it, yeah, it's, it's fast paced. It's maybe it's kinetic instead of frenetic, but they, yeah, there's, it's just like, it's going, it's a lot of fun. And then, you know, when they're sort of hanging off the the edge of the of the hotel and fall into the truck and whatnot, like, I don't know, it just is, it feels like a really fitting conclusion to this adventure. They've ended up in the back of, a, you know, Mendel's bakery truck. Um, yeah, really great stuff. Anything else before we enter wrap up on the Grand Budapest Hotel? I mean, I guess there's an emotional element that we haven't really talked. Like you talked a little bit about it, Scott. I mean, there's this almost like uh it's almost hangover-esque like sort of sobering emotionality to the the end of the film because you've gone through this huge adventure there's this massive sort of rousing success at the end but there's this sort of sobering reality sitting on the other side of the end of the story which is of course that you know gustav dies um is sort of killed by this new fascist regime that has taken over Agatha passes away as well from a disease, I believe it is. And you realize that Zero has sort of lived the rest of his life, you know, for 30, 40 years, you know, pretty much alone. He's owned the hotel, but is pretty much alone. And I think there is a a surrealness to that. And it's Jay, I think you mentioned at the outset that you found it very, very moving the end of the film. So I'd love maybe for you to expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think you get some questions around, like, you know, why do you still have, I mean, like, I don't, you don't think, you get questions about, you know, why are you still here um, at yeah. this hotel, like, after all this time? In the specific room that he's in, too, I mean, that sort of goes unsaid, but he's living in his, like, servant quarters or whatever, right? Right, and, you know, it's it's just the the fact that it connects him to, like, someone he loves so much, right? And, like, the fact that he still holds on to it and... Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me of like, I can't remember where I read this, but it was basically like, you know, in the aftermath of like losing someone, like the pain you feel is like, you know, the price of the love that you felt like that's just the deal. And, you know, in this case, like it, it feels like wildly unfair because, you know, he was quite young when all this happened and he lost these people. And, you know, it's been, I think you said like 30 years or something. So like, you know, he's, he spent a lot more time like, you know, in that pain stage than in the feeling the love stage, but he, 
you know, I, I Jay, aren't you aren't you thinking of what Minnie said was the greatest moment in screenwriting history from WandaVision when she said, uh, "What is grief if not love persevering?" I I do know that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was that was Vision uh, who said oh, that, yeah, but. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's I'm a variation on that. Like, I do, I'm familiar with that one too. I mean, that, that's the point, right? Is like, it, I'm mainly joking, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, similar idea though. And like, you know, you, it is, yeah. You do feel that. And, you know, I, you don't really get the sense that he like regrets it either, right? It's just like, you know, he found someone who like, he asked at the beginning, you know, if you're genuinely curious, like, I will tell you the story because, like, you know, yeah, sure it helps him relive get- it too. Right, like you wonder if he's done that with people before, right? Just because, like, he obviously seems to take some some zeal in telling the story, even if even though it does have you know the painful moments of talking about Agatha and everything, like, still like helps him feel connected, I guess, to to that environment, to that place where he you know is. Yeah, it's sure. it's, it's it's almost like a you know a, a way to remind himself what all of it's for right it's one thing for your life to become a routine where i'm doing this because i've done this for the past 30 years not i'm doing this because wow what an incredible you know series of months or year or whatever my life was for this period of time and that's what connected me to it so it's like almost this it's probably this very cathartic reminder of you know what's it all for in a way and obviously jude law's character he he sort of plays it off as deeply moved by by the story because ultimately we we the audience uh, kind of are jude law in this like we are hearing the story from him and experiencing it in that way so i think there's a sort of like an audience stand in there in the form of that which i think always it works pretty well when you can pull it off pull it off like that yeah i love the ending of the movie i, I mean you know maybe we could transition to talk about my favorite moment because i do think it comes in the end of the movie there's a line I guess, which I will, will call out, but sort of, sort of his last little salvo about, uh, about Monsieur Gustav. And he has the line where he says, I'm going to read it because I don't want to get it wrong, but there are still faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity. He was one of them. What, what more is there to say? I, I wish that the movie had ended right there. It goes on for like another minute or something after that. Cause you have to like, then peel back the layer and go through all the other stories uh, again, just to like sort of close the loop on that. But like that just feels like it would have been a perfect moment to end the movie with that, that line. But anyway, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful sentiment. And, you know, again, especially when you, when you get the context revealed of how he, he died, I always, it's one of my like favorite niche things in movies when you have like, even though it's not a, a per se real historical event here right like that is underscoring the events of the movie when like a personal individual story is being told but there's like this undercurrent of a major historical event going on that like you know and the eventually comes to a head and eventually like you know the characters find themselves within that context i really like when movies are able to do that success i mean casablanca um cabaret like there's a lot of examples a lot of favorite movies of mine are like that um and i think even though it's not a real historical event the final moments of this movie where it's like this is you know the world in which all this stuff was happening kind of in a way um that uh, that stuff just just works for me and i think it's it's handled really well in this movie so favorite moment scene sort of there 
Yeah, I think also worth shouting out before we we do pivot fully to the to the wrap up that, you know, we don't often talk about the cinematographer, the cinematographers or or even the people who are composing the scores for these movies. But uh, Alexander Desplat did win an Academy Award for the score, which is an excellent one. Deservedly so. Yeah. Robert Yeoman, who is pretty, has he done pretty much every West film? Like, I'm trying to think if there's one he hasn't done. There's maybe one that he hasn't done. I think. Sure. Yeah, because he's do, he's doing he did French Dispatch. He's doing Asteroid City. Wonderful story of Henry Sugar. He did Grand Budapest. He didn't do he did not do Isle of Dogs. I guess that's animated. So that makes sense. Um, Moonrise Kingdom, the Darjeeling Limited, Life Aquatic, Ten and Bombs, Rushmore, Bottle Rocket. Yeah, so he's like done every less and you can really feel their partnership sort of develop. And we've talked so at so many different points about different shots in this film and past films. And we haven't really talked about Yeoman too much, but he is, you know, integral to that West vision that you see on screen and every, he's done every live action film that, that West has done, I believe. So good stuff. Jay Production favorite design is also, is also gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, sure. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. we didn't really, we, we did win comment. four Academy Awards, I guess to not, it, uh, that's not, what I was, was nominated say. for nine. Yeah. We didn't comment on this, but this is like his Academy Award movie, right? Like, he, you know, he yeah. has some other nominations. He got nominated for Moonrise Kingdom for writing, Royal Tenenbaums, um, animated film, obviously, for Fantastic Mr. Fox. But, like, this is the one which, like, got all the attention, you know. Was but no, no acting nominations, ironically. Yeah. But I mean, Fines would have really been the only person who would have gotten one, probably. But eight or nine Oscar nominations, probably Best Picture, Best Director um so yep. he he really gets acknowledged here by the academy for the first and really the only time truly in in his career yeah it was nominated for nine one one score production design makeup and hairstyle and costume design but like scott mentioned was also nominated for picture director screenplay cinematography and editing like i said his most critically acclaimed film i was just saying, i just thinking back on it it's crazy to me that every single one of his movies does not get nominated for production design like you know who, who is who is doing it like he is doing it like i'll drop you a few names anyway. in the chat um yeah, sure go on the two, the two ladies who did once upon a time in hollywood they're ballers but yeah sure uh i think sean fantasy would say babylon uh i don't know whatever bro <laughs> jay favorite scene or moment I mean, shout out to the one that Scott Harvey just mentioned, but I'll I'll use my few seconds to point out one that Scott Shelton, you actually swooped in on and mentioned uh, sure. earlier, which is when sure. they're navigating the church and they go through that succession of succession of preaches, you know, are you Monsieur Gustave of the Grand Budapest Hotel, et cetera, et cetera. And by the end, he kind of is just like sick of it. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I just found that gag like particularly funny. Yeah, it's a good gag. I, the the repetitions always like yeah, between the <laughs> symmetry and the repetition. It's really, you know, it works. Something something about it is very charming, and it works very well. Yeah, and it buttons up with you know, confess. I didn't do it. No, no, C confess. Like, yeah, exactly. The whole it, thing it just, is just it strings along them. perfectly. Yeah, for I, I would probably say is the the downhill ski scene for me as well. But to be different, I'm going to say the jailbreak. I do think Jay, the specific moment that you were talking about earlier, where the guy sort of jumps down in the hole and, but the camera stays fixed on, um, you know, the, the guys above, ab up above watching all this happen below is a great sort of end cap 
to that because the actual prison brick itself is this very um, funny stuff. And I think when you also just see him like walking through the prison for the first time and see how you see his sort of charm and charisma and how it works in a facility where he's not even the boss of anymore. Like you, you can kind of understand how people would just be sort of kowtowing to him in the hotel. He's the concierge. He's the most, frankly, he's the most important person in the hotel, like sort of the world, like that, that world revolves around him. But in the prison, it's a, it's a for, it's a different environment. It's a foreign environment for him, but he still has so much charm and charisma. He's able to really sort of cast a spell on so many other people and win people over. Um, you know, whether you, I guess whether you think that's believable or not is one thing, but I think that's really cool to see how that works outside of that environment of, of the hotel. So love that as well. All right, guys, score out of 10, Scott, you first, what are you giving grand Budapest hotel? It's a 10 Scott. It Sick. is in Sick. the famous Scott Harvey top 100 favorite movies of all time. After this last rewatch, it's not just ten. a five bagger. It's a tenner. It is a tenner. Jay, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> A 10. Do it. Yes. Do it yes. Let's go. <laughs> it's a 10. I can't believe it. I said I it wasn't close, guys. That Okay. This was yeah. three three 10s. It's a 10 for me as well. Our, our third or fourth 10, triple 10 on the podcast. Very cool stuff. Look, it's a it's an incredible film. All that to say is that apparently this isn't Scott's favorite film. So we're in for another 10 in Wes Anderson countdown. And there's only two movies left. And I swear well to God, Scott, yeah. if you say 10 on Isle of Dogs next week, I'm going to come through the damn camera at you. Hey, it's the so. only one that has Greta Gerwig in it. So, Yeah, let's talk about Greta Gerwig next week, Scott, and her, and her will, performance I'm and sure character. We will have some and performance and character in the Isle of Dogs. I, I think that's a great place to pick up next time. Uh, that will do it for part eight of the Anderson Countdown. Don't forget to check out our podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate that. If not, that's okay. You can still find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you listen to your podcast. And we'd love it if you rated and reviewed us, subscribed, shared, et cetera, so that we continue to reach a broader audience. We really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about the triple 10 film, The Grand Budapest Hotel. We'll be back next week with part nine of The Countdown, when we'll be revisiting Wes Anderson's penultimate film to date and his second attempt at stop motion animation. That is Isle of Dogs. But until then... For Jay Habib and Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.